news first started coming out of China, messages over social media. It was probably a matter of weeks after that that we started receiving our, our first patients with COVID. The intensive care unit tripled in capacity. It's often up to six hours now that these patients are waiting in the back of an ambulance. But unfortunately, that's where we are at the moment. The hospitals are full. From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Tuesday, the 2nd of February, 2021. We have previously explained the important distinction between the severity of a disease and the severity of an epidemic. Although in the majority of cases, COVID-19 is not a severe disease, characteristics of the virus, in particular its infectivity and ability to spread via asymptomatic cases, make it a serious epidemic. COVID-19 has the potential to overwhelm health systems because of the rapid increase in the number of infected patients. Avoiding the overloading of Hong Kong's health system is one of the main goals of the public health measures in place here. In this episode, Dr David Owens talks to Dr Tom Owens, who has spent the last year as a frontline healthcare worker in London. Tom, we've spoken about COVID a lot over the last year. You've been working in intensive care initially and more lately in the emergency department in East London, but obviously growing up in Hong Kong, because apart from the uh, doctor-doctor relationship, we also have a father and son relationship. So I wonder if you could give us your experience of, of, of COVID. Obviously, I was coming at it from a a public health, um, more population health perspective. It's a little bit different when you're faced with it on, on the ground and we spoke a lot in January and then you went back to, that was the last time we saw each other, wasn't it? Yeah. When I got called back to Hong Kong because it was kicking off at that time over here. Uh, and shortly after that, it, it, it you know, maybe, maybe you could talk through your experiences of, of being in London through that early stages of that epidemic. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember, as you say, um, talking about it in January. And obviously that was a year ago now when um, news first started coming out of China of, of the virus and of of the the effect that it was having over there and then i think not long after that the the next thing that i remember clearly is is word coming out of italy of, of the impact that the virus is having in italy and in the hospitals there seeming overwhelmed and we started to get word from friends of friends who are working in italy and we got um messages over social media just just kind of explaining the, the state of play of things and how how much the hospitals were struggling to cope with the the huge influx of patients there and it, it then wasn't long it was probably a matter of weeks after that that um, we started receiving our, our first patients with COVID and yeah you know I was working in the intensive care and certainly over a matter of weeks there we we went from having a few cases of patients with COVID to just a huge structural change in the intensive care in order to try and facilitate um, you know dealing with as many of the sick patients as we were getting. So it was a really busy time between February and May of, of last year. And by the end of that time, the intensive care unit itself had, had tripled in capacity. We had taken over operating theatres and were managing patients in the operating theatres. We had taken over the recovery where people would normally recover after an operation. And we had taken over various other sites of the hospital as well, just to manage manage intensive care patients. So I think by all, all accounts and speaking to a lot of my senior colleagues, even 
to their eyes, it was a kind of unprecedented time and and, an unprecedented kind of scale of of the effect of a, a new disease. So definitely a challenge, yeah. I remember you talking to me that time about the collaboration and the sharing of information internationally. You, you were getting quite a lot of support from the Italian doctors who'd sort of been there weeks before and developed relatively new techniques, I think, in terms of ventilating. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it was it was incredible how quickly word was spreading and, and how quickly collaborations were being made. As you say, I mean, within London, there was a network set up with the intention of sharing information and, and also kind of being able to pull resources. But even just how quickly information was coming out of China and Italy in terms of publication of data and anecdotal evidence of how best to manage these patients. And, and yeah, as you say, it was incredible how quickly information and learning was spread across healthcare professionals in, in different countries and, and then across uh, London as well. Could you talk about the examples of, of proning, for instance, because we really didn't really have any treatments available at that time, did we? And I remember talking to you about the UK system of not really giving medications until they'd been through empirical trials. And I, I, I can remember saying to you, I really think, you know, shouldn't you be using more antiviral, retrovirals? And, and of course, as so often, Tom, you were right. Yeah, the, study has, the studies have subsequently shown that really Apart from steroids, there's very little that's, that's been a benefit for the, for this disease in terms of um, medications, have there? But there have been sort of techniques that have been developed. Could could you talk about what it meant on a sort of day to day basis? How you're actually ventilating people, and what you're actually doing in your job? Yeah, yeah. So so with regard to the the management of of COVID nineteen, I think um, there hasn't. It's not necessarily that there's been new techniques, but it's been kind of fine tuning of um, things that were already out there. So proning is something that is done in, in certain cases on the intensive care unit anyway. Essentially what proning means is just turning someone onto their front and, and uh, for various reasons that improves their um, their ventilation. So in doing so you can um, you can try to improve their, their uh, or you can try to slow down their, their worsening respiratory failure. And that's quite a big undertaking in in a patient who is um, ventilated because of the the fact that they have a breathing tube in and they, they have various other lines and things in. So to actually turn someone back to front um, is quite a big physical undertaking. Um, it, it's obviously worth saying that the intensive care units are well set up to manage patients with respiratory failure. That's what they do, whether it's COVID or, or other illnesses. Um, but the, the thing about COVID-19, as you've alluded to, is the there didn't really appear to be any any treatment of it. Proning was one thing that was found to have worked, and um, it is done in very severe cases of respiratory failure. And in intensive care units where I've worked previously, you might have one or two of the sickest patients who would be proned. But with the vast number of patients coming in extremely sick, it was it was in Italy where they just decided to to try this technique with. Um, with huge numbers of people, and so within a few weeks of the, the the first surge, there was teams set up specifically to go around the intensive care wards to turn people onto their front, and obviously to turn them onto their back again, because you can't lie on your front for really for more than twelve hours um, 
Although again, that was something that was evidence was was um, changing as to what the optimal time was to prone someone for. But what that meant on a day-to-day -day basis was amongst amongst a lot of the other jobs that were were ongoing, there would be teams who would go round and prone and deprone these patients at, at the at the you know the kind of appropriate time. Just to get a sense of the, I guess almost the the, the physical, but also the, the 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 psychological burden there. What, can you talk a little bit about your about the mortality rates in intensive care units in London around about that time? Yes, I don't, I don't have I don't have the numbers to hand, but certainly in the unit where I was working, mortality in the in the early stages was very high. I think if you look over that period, I would I would imagine mortality rates would be around 50%. That in itself was higher than you would expect for an intensive care unit. And I guess also, you know, in these early stages, hard it is to comprehend. But but sometimes these people were your colleagues, yeah. Yeah, as the as the pandemic progressed, the patient um, patient group obviously yeah did did include colleagues. And friends and that that obviously made things uh, well that that made things hit closer to home um, and for you know I, I'd been working in that hospital for uh, two or three years by that time so um, in some cases it people who I, I knew really well so um, yeah certainly it, it, it added a new element to the, the challenge of, of dealing with those patients certainly. And towards the end of that time, sort of later in the in the spring and the, and I guess in the summer, we 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 did have really quite an improvement, didn't we? If we look at the the epidemic curves and the mortality curves, and um, I, th I think now we're seeing a, a obviously a, a reappearance of what in the in the UK is a, is a second wave, and your your role has has changed a little bit in that you're now working um, in in, a, in an emergency department. Could you sort of talk through how that? How are you seeing the second wave in terms of the the different role and also the, the, you know what what's different about this in the UK in comparison to the first time around? Yeah, so as you say, I, I'm now working in a different hospital and working in the A and E as opposed to the intensive care area. So it's difficult to directly com compare the the first and the second wave, um, but certainly there are there are similarities. Again, it feels like there's been a, a huge influx of um, patients on an already strained system, um, and again, it, it feels like everything is is under under pressure in terms of um, being able to provide safe care for every patient. Um, this time round, obviously, there's been a bit more of a chance to to prepare, and and it's not come as as much of a surprise. Obviously, winter's always busy in the UK, and it was known from from the first wave really that this would be a difficult winter and that there would need to be um, huge systems changes to be able to manage that. In the hospital that I'm working in now, as you mentioned, there was a, an improvement in terms of case numbers and they took that opportunity to, to make huge changes to the, the structure of the hospital, including installation of extra oxygen cylinders to improve the oxygen capacity of the hospital. In the A&E, they've had building work there since I started in August to reshape the structure of the A&E and again to improve capacity there to be able to take on more patients through the A&E. 
but also to to help divide the hospital better between COVID and non-COVID patients, um, which is obviously a, a fluid ratio, but um, increasingly we're seeing more and more COVID patients come through again now. And I know you were telling me that um, the, the the clearing times in terms of ambulance have been up at sort of six six hours or, or more in some situations. So, I mean, that, that would suggest that the system is pretty strained in terms of getting numbers through. What would you be doing on a day-to-day basis at the moment in terms of those arriving patients? Yeah, so the, the last few weeks have been particularly busy. And, and as you say, there has been the knock-on effect of the hospital hospitals being essentially full is that there have been huge waits for the ambulance crews to actually offload the patient into the A&E. In normal circumstances, you would expect the ambulances to offload within 20 to 30 minutes. But as you say, it's often up to six hours now that these patients are waiting in the back of an ambulance. So that's that's completely changed the the model that we, we have to kind of deal with those patients in the A&E. And what that means is we're now going out into the ambulances and, and starting the treatment and the care for the patients whilst they're, they're in the ambulances themselves. And then obviously trying to make space for them in the A&E and then within the hospital um, when we're able to do that. Um, so yeah, that that's definitely brought its own challenges, especially over winter. Um, it's it's pretty cold over here at the moment, and and a lot of these patients are obviously they're unwell. A lot of them are quite elderly and frail as well. So it's definitely not the best thing for them to be sat out in a, a cold ambulance for a few hours. But unfortunately, that's that's where we are at the moment. So what are you actually practically doing in the ambulance? I guess it's an extension of what we would otherwise be doing. So the the ambulance crews will come in, and the first thing that will happen is they'll be seen by one of the um, senior doctors who will will make a decision about whether their care needs to be escalated immediately. And even now, if that's the case, we will escalate their care and we will bring them inside to somewhere and, and just, just expedite their, their initial treatment and management, essentially. Threshold for that has obviously changed. And now we're, we're seeing much sicker patients who we, we are now not able to make that space for. But but still, the, the process is the same. So we, we are triaging them um, now in the back of the ambulances. We'll do a basic set of blood tests in the back of an ambulance, and we will initiate their treatment in the back of the ambulance as well. On occasion, if someone needs certain imaging, an X-ray or a CT scan, we'll take them to scan from the ambulance, and then we'll put them back in the ambulance after the scan, um, and we'll be able to interpret all the information whilst the patient's in the ambulance. And again, if, if there's anything that needs immediate intervention, then we'll, we'll bring them in somewhere and 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 do that as as we can and kind of move things around it's it's quite a fluid setup at the moment so there's there's lots of moving around the um the patients around the department the problem is that we're not able to discharge patients from the hospital um as quickly as they're coming into the hospital basically and the hospitals are full and as a result of that there's a backlog effect which affects the A&E and, and the flow through the A&E and patients in normal times are expected to be in the A&E for no more than four hours. So they're meant to have been seen by a doctor and um, kind of diagnosed with a problem and sent up to the wards within four hours. But now we've got patients in the A&E up to two days. So the effect of that is that there's just no beds in the A&E because there's no beds in the in the wider hospital. So because there's no beds, there's nowhere for those patients to be offloaded from the ambulances into. So you're really managing an acute care ward within the emergency department then? 
Yeah, and that has an impact on the care that you can provide in the A&E because the, the A&E is not staffed or set up in a way that the patients would get nursing care as they would do on the ward. So that is one of the problems at the moment is that, as you say, that the A&E itself has to be managed like an acute care ward. And how many COVID patients per day would you think that you'd be seeing at the moment? To be honest with you, I, I don't know the actual numbers, but in terms of those COVID patients getting admitted, I, I would imagine there's, there's certainly more than 100 a day. That's what it feels like anyway. Actually, by coincidence, Tom, I read an article, I think it was in The Guardian, that was describing a, a report suggesting uh, 40% of frontline intensive care and emergency healthcare staff in the NHS are suffering from PTSD and almost 50% from combinations of anxiety or PTSD. And, and that, and this was higher levels than found in combat, according to the to the uh, article. How does that sit? I guess it, it, it's clearly a stressful time when you're dealing with seriously ill people and, and high mortality, maybe also compounded by, by a lockdown and reduced social interaction. What's it like on the ground there from your perspective? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the number doesn't surprise me. Certainly from the discussions I had with um, friends and colleagues the first time around in in March, a lot of us were, were struggling with sleep. I, I think everyone I spoke to, including myself, were having really vivid dreams. And I think anxiety did play a part as well. One of the things that the hospitals did quite early on was they involved the local psychiatrist and um, they've been accessible throughout the, the second wave for anyone that wants to speak to them. But yeah, it definitely doesn't surprise me to hear those numbers. And I think going into the second wave, exactly like you say, that the fact that things have been going on for so long and that we have been in lockdown now for a while as well just just compounds the stress that people might be feeling at work after a difficult day if they're then coming home and they're not necessarily able to release in the way that they would normally choose to do it. It has been stressful for, for a lot of people. I guess you've also got shift work as well you know, with nights and days. So could just tell us about what would your typical, say, two-week period be in, in, in terms of your, your working hours? Yeah, so again, that changed throughout the, the management of the pandemic. So the first time around, our rotors were all changed and simplified, really, so that we were we were in um, on what was defined as a crisis rotor. So we were all doing 12-hour shifts, and we were all we had all cancelled any leave or anything like that so that we were all available to be called in for extra shifts if needed. So we were all doing... We were all doing um, long shifts and lots of them, and it was a combination of night shifts and day shifts. And so it's a, I guess it's a, 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 a diagnosis that you've got quite a lot of experience with. You presumably, you know, the nature of any of these conditions, you get a bit of a touch for the subject. I guess you could recognise a COVID from the end of the bed now, yeah. Yeah, very much so. One of the challenges now is is not dismissing some of the other things that can present in any way similar to COVID, but definitely the, the first diagnosis at the front of the mind is, is COVID. Certainly having worked in intensive care and A&E now, I've kind of seen the spectrum of it. And it's something that you can spot a patient a mile away who, who's presenting with it. And it's, it's I've probably seen more patients with COVID than I have with anything else um, since I've started working. And 
in terms of other things that would normally occupy your job in sort of middle grade in an emergency department, and is it is it fair to say that they've reduced at the moment? Presumably, there's not as much traffic on the road, so less road traffic accidents. Pubs are closed, so is there less assaults, less stabbings, less less urgent urgent traumatic care, or is that still going on? It, it's still going on, but it definitely is less. It's a difficult one because there are still lots of those things happening and there are still patients coming in sick with other things. But at the moment, it, it, yeah, it's, it's COVID that's kind of taking priority. Um, there are still sick patients who are coming in and being treated as, as they would otherwise. Um, but I suspect there's lots of people who are perhaps not coming into hospital or not presenting because of the concerns, quite rightly, that, um, of the infectious nature of COVID in the hospital. Well, you know, Tom, we're both optimistic by nature. Yeah, the, the daffodils will be out soon. Spring's on its way. Yeah. Any anything to be optimistic about from your perspective? Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, the the obvious thing is that the the vaccine now has has been, um, well, it's well on the way to being rolled out in the UK. Um, it's incredible to think that that it's only been twelve months that they've managed to to kind of design and then begin rollout of a vaccine. I think that's the that's the big positive positive thing at the moment um and i think you know the fact that things are still running in the uk um patients are still being seen um i think obviously with the vaccine rolling out hopefully it bodes well for, for the management of the virus over the next 12 months and of course you managed to uh, to get covid in the back of one of those ambulances over christmas and managed to skive <laughs> off a few days off off work so that's yeah, exactly. Feeling better now, though. Yeah, feeling absolutely fine now. I, I never, I never felt particularly sick, but um, yeah, t- ten days at home over Christmas was was well timed. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully it won't be a year before we uh, catch up next time. And of course, uh, if nothing else, uh, your wedding, which was postponed from Hong Kong last October. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get go, we'll get we'll get it. To, we'll, hopefully we'll get it together, and you'll be back in Hong Kong before the end of this year. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's a whether it's a Zoom wedding or a a wedding in person, we'll we'll <laughs> we'll make it happen somehow. <laughs> okay, thanks for that update, Tom. And um, we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. We hope you enjoyed the latest episode of OTMP's COVID nineteen update. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it or subscribe via Spotify or iTunes or via the page on our website. Thank you.